Like many members of my tribe, I have an intense relationship with food. When I was growing up, my dad owned a barbecue restaurant in Denver. It was called Gator Magoon's. My dad and his brother made up a whole bubamitza about the legend of Gator Magoon, a fictional character who hailed from the Okefenokee Swamp. I don't think Gator was Jewish. Gator's made the best smoked brisket sandwich I've ever eaten, and addicted me to barbecued pork ribs at a very young age. My childhood memories of my dad are mostly of him coming home late at night after work from Gator's, enshrouding me in a thick cloud of hickory smoke as he tucked me in and I fell back to sleep. Even today, I am certain I have hickory smoke in my blood. So, what were two Jews from Denver doing, making a living smoking barbecued pork ribs? Really, it's the story of the American Reformed Jew. We love locks, but when it comes to kosher, we're lax. So, the next three episodes, three episodes of The Kibbutz are going to be all about food. As I mentioned, I have an intense relationship with it. Part one, this episode has an installment of Kasher vs. Kasher talking about kosher laws and how keeping kosher might have made Jews a more isolated yet stronger community. I've got a great interview with the director and a producer of City of Gold, the mouth-watering documentary about Pulitzer Prize-winning food writer Jonathan Gold. Yes, he's Jewish. My 95-year-old Nana tells a schmaltzy joke and waxes nostalgic about the old days of schmaltz and gribbonus. Oi, <laughs> it just sounds chewy to say it. And last, City of Gold producer Lara Rabinovich tells us about the time at her bat mitzvah when the dance floor parted like the Red Sea for a kid walks into a bar. So, go fix yourself a schmaltz sandwich and get ready to take a bite of this special food episode of The Kibitz. Separately, they're Rabbi David Kasher and comedian Moshe Kasher. Together, on the kibbutz, these two brothers will debate keeping kosher. I began this installment brilliantly, I have to say, by asking the rabbi, yes, the rabbi, if he keeps kosher. I do keep kosher as a rabbi. That's one of my practices, indeed. Yes. I think you got to do that. It's I got much more... Uh, dietary restrictions than Judaism could have provided for me. I live in Hollywood <laughs> and work in show business, so <laughs> I got my own form of kashrut that's much more egg whites and like, yeah, that's yeah. Right. no gluten. Yeah, no gluten. Uh, yeah. So wait, I, I'm complete. I'm very ignorant on the subject of uh, of, of kosher because I. I eat it. My dad. I grew up. My dad owned a barbecue restaurant. So like, oh really? Barbecued rib. Yeah, I mean, I was pork ribs all the time, and yeah. I mean, they're so, good though. You gotta, yeah, you gotta give it up for pork ribs. They taste real good, but they make God angry though. They, yeah, they God make God like that, very though. angry. I know. He gets, yeah, man. Yeah, I was very upset about it. I can, I can feel his wrath right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so is a cheeseburger not allowed? That's milk. It, and cheeseburgers meat. not allowed. Uh, so basically, the two, uh, you know, there's lots of laws in in the kosher system, but the two main things, if you wanted to just kind of simplify it, is that there's certain animals you don't eat. Like pig is one of them, but there's lots of certain birds you don't eat and certain mammals you don't eat and certain sea creatures you don't eat. And then that's one category, forbidden animals. And then the other category is mixing milk and meat. And there's this line that repeats itself three times in the Torah that you should not cook 
a kid, like a baby goat, in its mother's milk. And it's not clear why. It seems maybe it's like out of some sense of humanity, like it's just so so inhumane to actually cook an animal in its own mother's milk. But um, that gets expanded to just a general prohibition on mixing meat and and dairy products together. The great so. it's the greatest injustice that the rabbis ever perpetuated upon the Jewish people was when they decided that cooking a kid in its mother's milk could be extended to cooking a kid in milk could be extended to co- the greatest co- injustice ever. Hmm. That the rabbis perpetuate listen, cheeseburgers are good and it doesn't seem right that God would want us not to have them. You can't have like chicken with cream sauce. Yeah, because no. they were worried that if you ate like chicken cheeseburgers, like then you would eventually just start eating cheeseburgers. That's which, true. It sounds like he's doing the comedian joke. Oh, it's like a gateway. It's a gateway. No, drug. it's like yeah, it's a gateway burger. Gateway burger. Uh-huh. Gateway burger. Gateway no, burger. but look, it, it is on some level about sacrifice. Like it, it, it's it on some level is about you know disciplining yourself for some higher purpose. There's that Maimonides actually says. You know, you shouldn't say, ew, I hate non-kosher food. I never want to eat it anyway. Instead, you should say, I would love to. It does see cheeseburgers do seem good, but what can I do? Like my father in heaven per- prohibits it. So there's this like, you know, idea that, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sacrificing. I'm actually down with that. And there's something beautiful, I think, to it, which is like, even here, I will put God or even here, I will put spirituality, even in this most mundane process of shoving food into my mouth and and crapping it out later, even that will be infused with spirit. Obviously, there are many ways to eat um, unhealthy and to eat uh, with with, you know, with with to do damage to your to your system. And, you know, the actual laws of kosher, even in Jewish tradition, it's not clear why they are like, we don't have an exact worked out reason why, but there is some basic sense that you, you take on a discipline and there's something about that, that, that rhythm and that discipline that, that is, that brings a sense of consciousness to eating. I mean, yeah, I will say that, uh, and while I don't particularly totally keep kosher, I, I, there's nothing I like less than the person that like leaps into the kosher, it's always a Jew who leaps into the kosher conversation about pork and goes, well, yeah, you know, the reason they wrote that is because at the time it was very uh, unsanitary to eat pork and it's about a, it's like, oh, really? Were you, you were, you biblical scholar? You, you, you definitely not just quoting an article that you read 15 years ago and aren't even sure is accurate. Like, you don't know why these people, why it was written like that. You have no idea what you're talking about. Like, maybe it was because of that. Maybe it's because God said, don't eat pork. Maybe there's a thousand other reasons to, to, to say that it had nothing to do with like, their true belief that it was the spiritually right thing to do is kind of a irreligious cynicism that I kind of can't get behind. That said, I, I do miss pork ribs. <laughs> and here's the thing, you know, I mean, Moshe has said he doesn't eat pork, but he does, but he also doesn't keep a strict kashrut, like kosher, kosher practice. And, you know, and I keep a much stricter one, but I think, you know, one of the, misconceptions out there that I'd like to disabuse is this notion that there's just keeping kosher and not keeping kosher and you either right. keep it all the way or you don't. And it's, it's quite clear when you look at, at, at Jewish practice that there are various levels of keeping kosher. And it's not, you know, if you, if you're like, I don't eat bacon, I don't know why, but that's just my Jewish, you know, heritage, then that's, that's, that's a meaningful act. I mean, that's something you're doing to, you know, relate your eating habits with your identity and with your, with your belief system on some level. And, you know, so there's just, there's lots of levels of keeping kosher. And I think it's, it's a mistake to think, oh, well, I can't imagine making my entire house kosher. So, 
so I guess I, I won't do it at all. I thought to myself, I would at one point in my life, I would like to eat healthier. I would like to eat less meat in my diet. And what would be a good way for me to do that? Oh, well, here's this thing that belongs to the tradition in which I was born that I don't necessarily think there's a God that cares whether or not I eat a cheeseburger. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there isn't. No, there is. There is. Just, you know. <laughs> he yeah, he feels <laughs> more strongly the other way. I was like, why wouldn't I just take on this form of dietary discipline, which will accomplish my goals personally and also infuse my tradition and in some weird way, maybe spirituality into the way I eat. I will I will say that as, you know, as the rabbi in the conversation, the person who's sort of like the defender of the faith, I'll say the one part of keeping kosher that I, I find difficult is the way in which it is uh, either meant to or just inevitably separating you from other people, from friends, from non-Jewish people, I, I, you know, and, and some of the some of the traditions really intentionally doing that. But one way or another, it makes it really difficult to gather together and to eat together, which is sort of one of the basic uh, human activities. And I think, you know, throughout our history, there's been many good reasons for Jewish solidarity to be like, you know, emphasized. But I, I, I find it, I, I, that's the real challenge for me is trying to find ways to, you know, keep my kosher practice, but also be in community with with other people and, and to be able to like share meals with other people that that's hard. That's hard. And it's something I, I try and figure out ways, ways around. And historically, because I studied Jewish history at some point in my life before I was a comedian, historically, the two reasons that it was difficult to, uh, uh, why we have had so few converts was one male circumcision. Men weren't really into that. And two, this, uh, it was like, uh, people would convert, and then they wouldn't be able to eat with their family anymore. They wouldn't be able to come over and eat with yeah. their old family, and that's pretty shitty uh, for a lot of different reasons. And so it's 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 a it's a challenging one. Yeah. For me, the great question about Jews has always been like, how do we exist? You know, after every other religion surrounding us has sort of fallen into the sort of chasm of history, and the only ones that survived were these huge monolith religions, and somehow these little Jews survived. So. Everything that kept us cohesive and insular and separate, I hate to say it, is another thing that kept us uh, survive, kept us in a survival mode. So even the stuff that seems completely asinine, inane, and arbitrary, without it, the odds are very good that we just wouldn't even be having this conversation because we'd all be Zoroastrians and then Christians and then nobody would even know. Then there'd be no Woody Allen, for better or for worse. <laughs> Look, I mean, you know, someone who's a who's a hardcore vegan also has challenges when they eat at their friends' houses or when they go out to restaurants. If you're a vegan and you say we shouldn't eat animals on a moral level because it's cruel, and then you say to that vegan, "Well, what about animals that eat other animals?" Isn't the only answer available? Well, we're better than that. Therefore, putting ourselves above the animal that we are saying we ought not to be eating. So, in some way, every dietary choice is based on a decision that you've made about what's the moral choice, right. the moral right in this in this case. And I don't know if it's morally right not to eat cheeseburgers. I honestly don't think it is morally right to not eat cheeseburgers. But it does seem like there's a powerful, positive, you know, voodoo and magic to infusing your diet with identity 
and tradition. And we haven't even discussed the fact that Judaism, uh, kosher laws was one of the first, if not the first, systems of animal slaughter that involved uh, avoidance of unnecessary cruelty to the animal, which is like a powerful and profound thing. Whether or not that's always played out in the slaughterhouses of kosher uh, butchers is uh, immaterial. I mean, that's a very powerful thing that that's even an ethic that says you shouldn't cause undue suffering to these animals. As much as saying, it hints at a, a, a bigger question of whether we should be eating animals altogether. And I'm also not going to render judgment on that question. I think it's a complicated ethical question. But it is clear from the biblical narrative that Adam and Eve didn't eat animals. And then at a certain point, Noah saved all the animals. And so God's like, all right, well, you now just all alone on earth, you have like the right to eat animals. So there's some shift there. Hmm. But it's not clear that that's an ideal system. And a lot of the elements of kosher law suggest that you should, certainly shouldn't cause pain to animals. And maybe someday on the highest level of, of spirituality, we'll actually, uh, we'll actually stop eating animals. And if that happened, then it'd be, if we were all vegetarian, it'd be a lot easier to eat uh, food at everybody's house. That's right. And also, if we all went vegan, we'd save the earth, right? But we're not going to. So why don't, we might as well enjoy that cheeseburger while we crash and burn. <laughs> I haven't had a cheeseburger in a long time, but I remember them. They sound really good. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm off to go get a cheeseburger uh, down the street. In fact. And, I'm, and we're going to go I'm eat off, some, some vegan food. Yeah, we're off to go get our sa- souls saved. So yeah, have so, fun with your cheeseburger. <laughs> you know, cheeseburger. Yeah, burning in hell. Burning in hell. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't think we'd end this on a you're going to hell yeah. note. I thought we were much more positive than that. But I, I guess did. I guess that's where we well, are. Yep. I mean, All right. which really just brings us to Jimmy Buffett and cheeseburger in paradise and the irony, the inherent irony in the title of that song. Mm. and washing it down with you know, a it's, margarita there's, margarita there's lots of, with kosher salt on the rim sure. that was actually I the mean, tr- the forbidden fruit in the garden of I mean a lot of people think it was an apple but it was actually a cheeseburger <laughs> actually that would make a lot more sense yeah, yeah. it would yeah <laughs> um, thanks so much for uh, kibitzing with us today and uh, we'll see you soon thanks man bye, bye. try to amend my carnivorous habits made an L-78 losing way well out speedy Sunflower seeds, drinking lots of carrot juice and soaking up a race. But at night, I'd have these wonderful dreams. Some kind of sensuous treat. Not zucchini, fettuccine, vulgar wheat, but a big warm bun and a huge hunk of meat. Featured documentary City of Gold is a love letter to Los Angeles, as seen through the eyes and stomach of legendary food writer Jonathan Gold. The film prompted our own Rabbi David Kasher to write, quote, City of Gold made this NorCal rabbi want to both move to LA and stop eating kosher. That's how good it is. Here's my interview with the film's director, Laura Gabbert, who speaks first, and producer Lara Rabinovich. Just to get started, I, you know, Jonathan Gold seems like a, a very difficult person to convince of anything aside from eating. Um, so was it difficult to convince him to, to sign on for this? It was. It was. It was. Uh, it took some. Um, we had probably 
Well, I, I started because I, I bid on an auction item with him, critic with a dinner at our children's. Our children go to the same school, our children's school. And my sort of idea was that I would broach the subject with him there. And he sort of laughed it off. And then I followed up and had coffee with him. And he said no. But he's, he, would, he was happy to sit down and talk with me about my ideas. Um, so I kind of knew it was there was a possibility. I felt like there is there is like... He left the door cracked open a little bit. Gotcha. Um, so you bid on that item specifically just so you could to like launch the conversation about it. Oh, I did. Very yeah. clever. Um, <laughs> and uh, but he, you know, he was very. I mean, first of all, there was this idea of being anonymous, which he wasn't really, but he was still kind of carrying around that idea, you know, as a critic. And then he also felt, you know, very strongly about the fact that you know he didn't want it to be sort of a reality TV type sort of you know, take on him, which I wasn't interested in doing in the first place. Um, and he, he basically just convinced me that it wouldn't make a very interesting documentary because he wouldn't provide any dramatic conflict. He wouldn't, you know, let me film his family. He wouldn't, you know, there were all these things. He just kept trying to kind of, you know, challenge me on on everything. And um, and, and finally, I think we kind of came to this point where, where you know, I, I told him I really wanted to make sort of an essay film on Los Angeles through his eyes. And then he kind of came around. That's when he thought, well, maybe that could work. Yeah. Maybe we could try that for a while. So we agreed just to spend <clears throat> a couple of days shooting together and see how it felt for him. And then that just led to, you know... Five years of shooting, basically. <laughs> Just a mere, a mere five years <laughs> yeah. of shooting. Yeah. Wow. Um, how did you get involved in the film? And I uh, came to the film sort of a circuitous way. Um, for one reason or another, Laura met my husband, and then my husband, who doesn't normally do this, said, I think you need to meet my wife. Because my <laughs> PhD was basically in pastrami. Like, I worked on Romanian Jewish immigrants <laughs> wow. and Little Romania on the Lower East Side, which was something like um, Little Italy or Chinatown. In other words, like the origins of the quote-unquote ethnic restaurant in America. Hmm. Um, so, so what I... all. So my research, my academic research, was really close to what Jonathan was doing in real life today. Um, so Laura and I started talking about that, and then one thing led to another, and I just said, like, I'm in love with this project. I just want to keep – I'm just going to stay here, uh -huh. <laughs> basically. <laughs> you can't get rid of me. <laughs> and that's what happened. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, I was really uh, – for me, I was surprised at um, – I was telling some friends about the movie, and I was like – tearing up describing the the chefs that you know start these mm -hmm. restaurants and they come from you know whatever country and then they yeah. scrap together enough money to open this thing and then <laughs> they like all these white people showed up at our restaurant we don't know why and then yeah. oh Jonathan Gold wrote about us and then they show the picture of the kid who just graduated from med school and you're like oh geez like he's really he's changing lives yeah. I'm getting choked up now thinking about it <laughs> um, so that's true um, don't get off a I know, I'm getting verklempt. <laughs> Thank you for segueing into, uh, into our, our Jewish uh, portion of the conversation. Um, so I, I did notice that it seemed like a lot of the talking heads that you had in the film, uh, in addition to you know Jonathan as a character, were Jews. Not all of them, but it seemed like there were a, a fair number of Jews. Do you think that there's, what do you think, why do you think Jews gravitate towards food criticism? Laura? <laughs> um, I know what Jonathan's answer is. I mean, I mean, it's not a secret that Jews are writers and Jews are thinkers. 
and Jews have a lot to say. Um, so I think it's only natural that you're going to find the history of criticism populated with Jews. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's just because at least one of the producers was Jewish that there's a lot of Jewish people in this film. Um, I think that has it has more to do with the relationship between Jews and writing and Jews and cultural th- criticism. Yeah. Or I, to me, there's a it's and food, a, obviously. Yeah, it's yeah, a, it's I mean, a fine line between food. between uh, criticism and fetching. I think. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. And yes, we'll, we'll talk about Jews and food too. But yeah. what, what do you what you said you you? Oh, I just I, I just heard him when people have asked him questions like that. I've heard him say jokingly because we don't drink. That's kind of coming from Jonathan. <laughs> but he's not a big drinker. He's like, he drinks with food, but he's not. Yeah, he's in, a, just he's, in the culture. It's like it's part of the culture. I mean, he's it's tongue in cheek when he says it. Yeah, he's not. I, he doesn't come across as like an Anthony Bourdain. Uh, you food know. is kind of like the right, Jewish exactly. cultural form, like the 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 uber cultural. Not, I mean, it's the um, the um, ur cultural form for Jews is eating. Yeah, why, and why do you think that is? Like, what do you think that comes from? You know, I think there's a lot of Jews are emotional, demonstrative. Um, social? Social, and in the history of Judaism has also been one of exclusion, you know? Um, and so food has been a way that Jews can together, um, yeah, socialize and... Um, have a common, a shared history and religion and uh, approach to life. Yeah. So I think that, I don't know, maybe Jews are just ahead of the game. Maybe we just knew about the whole like interest. Like maybe we're just the original foodies of the whole world <laughs> because we just knew better. Right. Well, there's that nice, uh, he's talking about, you know, growing up in, in LA as a reformed Jew and how you can kind of measure you can tell more about a family from what deli they go to mm-hmm. than what shul they go to, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was great. I think it's partly his Jewishness, but it's also, he's just so curious. Yeah. He just has like this yeah. insatiable curiosity and open-mindedness is the thing that I'm always struck by yeah. him. He just is, he just wants to try everything. And it's not about being... Um, having huge appetites. It's just, a, it's, it's intellectual. Although he does seem to Although have. he does. <laughs> and and those, two, those two things match up very well. Sure. But um, he just has this kind of, you know, unrelenting curiosity. Yeah. And also just, he, he really doesn't judge. He just is open to it. Yeah. And if he does judge, then he really questions why he is judging. And he goes back and looks at it again and looks at it again and mm-hmm. tries to figure out if there, you know, cultural relativism going on and why is he not liking something. And I just think he's like an extremely um, rigorous and deep thinker about food. He's yeah. kind of a renaissance man. I mean, he's kind of like a polymath and a renaissance man. Yeah. And, and food just happens to be his current obsession. You do cover a little bit about the sort of L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, deli scene. Mm-hmm. Was there a lot more footage around that that you didn't end up using? Anything interesting not, out of there? You know, not really, yeah. actually. I mean, there are places that we didn't eat where we really wanted to. Like, I really, he loves Langer's. We really wanted to go to Langer's. We just never made it there. I mean, I would have yeah. loved to have that be a scene in the movie. Yeah. Um, but there's plenty of places like that that I wish had made it into the movie. Um, I love that he was talking about, again, it was sort of like mapping Los Angeles through 
delis and and different social classes through delis. And so it kind of fit in thematically to what we were doing in the film. And also that he's Jewish. I mean, it felt, you know, resonant and relevant in that way, too. But did he talk at all about sort of the decline of like the yesteryear of of, of Delhi food and how it used to be? Or? You know, I've heard him talk about it. I don't know that we ever filmed it, but I've yeah. heard people ask him about it, and he has he has talked about it. You know that you know these delis that were in families for generations, it just ends up there's no one to take it over at a certain point, and there's not the interest in it as much, um, which is sad. But then, yes, like you said, David Sachs probably talked about that. There's all sorts of new interesting things happening yeah. in that sector as well. I'm sure Jonathan misses schmaltz sandwiches as much as I do. <laughs> okay, I don't even know what that is. But a schmaltz sandwich, <laughs> like how do you, what's, a, what's, what's in a schmaltz sandwich? I can't even say it's schmaltz, schmaltz sandwich. It's like sandwich. literally a fat sandwich. So it's just like two pieces of bread with schmaltz in yeah, between? Yeah, my dad grew up eating schmaltz sandwiches. Like not a sandwich necessarily, like maybe an open face. Like he would come from school and his bubby would just like spread some schmaltz, chicken bat, mm-hmm. rendered chicken bat on a piece of rye bread and put wow. a little salt. And like that sounds was delicious. That sounds really good. <laughs> I mean, it's not dissimilar to, you know, the lardo that you would yeah, find mm-hmm. in an Italian yeah, restaurant. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Pig fat. Not, yeah. not, not great for the Jews, but, um, <laughs> but delicious nonetheless. Um, awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, coming by the kibitz yeah. and uh, talking about this film, City of Gold, which uh, is amazing. And hopefully it'll be on streaming on Hulu sometime. Sometime in the next it's still several in months. But it's still in but theaters, theaters now. It's actually in 50 markets. 50 markets. Yeah, wow, it's that's in a amazing. lot of markets right now. So awesome. um, cityofgolddoc.com. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks so Thanks much. Thanks so much for having us. Of course. Thanks. My Nana is a 95-year-old Jew, and one of her favorite meals is tempura fried shrimp and barbecued pork ribs. Go figure. What about food? Any, any jokes about food or Jews eating? Jew food? Yeah. <laughs> oh, these Jewish people came into a restaurant, ladies, for lunch, and they sat down, and the waiter came up and said, is anything all right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the Jewish food has gotten better or worse over time? I'm off of it. <laughs> yeah, we just, I don't like Jew food anymore. <laughs> yeah, we just had shrimp and pork ribs for dinner. It was the least kosher Shabbos dinner, I think, that's ever been eaten. Friday night Shabbos. Yeah. We had... Pork spare ribs <laughs> and uh, coleslaw and uh, tiramisu cake for dessert and ice cream. We mixed milk with meat. We did everything wrong and we're still here and God still blesses us. <laughs> they used to make these terrible things like they had to use up every bit of the chicken from the skin of the chicken, they made gribbonas that were full of fat. And from the gribbonas, they made schmaltz. And they put schmaltz in everything, like even in matzo balls, ruined everything. <laughs> I heard schmaltz was delicious. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> when you were growing up, is that how you ate? No, I, no my mother never did that, but my grandmother who came over from the old country. She came actually over from Scotland. 
but she made everything with schmaltz. <laughs> and did you like it or not so no, much? No, I didn't like it. My it, brother loved gribbonas. My mother made gribbonas, and my brother used to eat them. They were full of fat, yeah. just sickening. Everybody got diabetes. <laughs> Old Jews got diabetes. But I think schmaltz is delicious. I've heard that frying latkes in schmaltz is like the greatest thing. Yeah, they used to fry everything in schmaltz. Yeah. There was a Scottish restaurant downtown in L.A., and they served uh, gefilte fish and chips. <laughs> that is true. Shockingly, they are no longer in business. Sounds like they should be out of business before they were out of business. <laughs> anyway, that's about it. That's about it. Any more jokes? Any more jokes you can think of? Any more what? Any more jokes? Can't think of them. It's too late. I can't think. All right. If I remember any, I'll call you. <laughs> you know where to find me. I know. Bye. City of Gold consulting producer Lara Benovich is a specialist in food culture and history. She's working on a book about pastrami and Little Romania in early 20th century New York City. Here's her bat mitzvah story for A Kid Walks Into a Bar. I had my bat mitzvah in Toronto okay. um, in 1992. And I actually loved my bat mitzvah experience. I really made it my own. Um, my mom was always an early tech adopter, and she had a computer, an early computer. It was like 1992. Sorry, it was 1992, and I'm getting like, um, you know, a little choked up talking about <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not <laughs> And um, anyway, she bought a computer program called, like a really early computer program called Family Tree Maker. Oh, and cool. I um, spent an inordinate amount of time obsessed with creating my family tree. Um, and that was my embutment for project. That's cool. Um, mm-hmm. And it was important to me. And I did, I connected my whole, I mean, whatever. I was, did my PhD in Jewish studies. Like, it's no surprise that I loved having a bat mitzvah. Sure. I don't know. Um, How was the I food? was weird. Like, <laughs> the food was great. Like, I, um, I, I remember, I don't know, that was my brother's bar mitzvah where one of my cousin's, like when he's sort of an older cousin and he's like obsessed with lamb chops and we had like all these lamb chops, like kind of like lamb chop popsicles. Uh-huh. And um, <laughs> the lamb chopsicle. and it was like stations all around. My parents, we did the party at our house and we did, my parents did like stations and there was like a lamb chop popsicle station. And um, he just sat there and ate 30 lamb chop popsicles <laughs> all in one sitting, which is like such a, you know, Jewish uncle bar mitzvah yeah. thing. And uh, the caterers had to like run back to the restaurant in the middle of the party and refuel lamb. on lamb chop popsicles. Oh but um, yeah, I Did mean. Did you have a theme? Was there a theme for the? Uh, for my bar mitzvah? Uh, we were, I, I feel like my bar mitzvah was really ahead of the time. I had this like amazing tie-dye dress that my mom, my mom's super into fashion. She's an art historian and she took me downtown in Toronto to like this really cool designer 
who had uh, her name, I don't know her name, but the store was called like FX, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was like just these super like pre-hipster hipster dresses. And I had this like tie-dye concoction that was <laughs> like at once super, it, like it wasn't, it was just past the era of like 80s poofiness. Uh-huh. So it was like kind of hip and ahead of its time in a lot of ways. I mean, whatever. I still had braces and was totally an awkward 12-year-old, but <laughs> right. whatever. But you had it going on yeah. with, with your dress. Yeah. If, you could, uh, if you could go back and change anything, what would you uh, do differently? Um, I think the only thing that I remember as deeply traumatizing during my bat mitzvah was – uh, we had had the party, like I said, in my parents' house, and the kids' party was in the basement. By the way, I insisted on having a Jewish deli cater the kids' party of the bat mitzvah because I wanted pastrami and smoked meat nice. at my bat mitzvah. So I had that, and that was like such a precursor, of course, of what I would go on to do. But um, I also insisted on a dance floor because it was a carpeted basement, and I was having a DJ in the basement, whatever. And my parents did not want to spoil me, so they did not want the dance floor to be, like, they didn't want to rent the dance floor. So um, the day of the bat mitzvah came, and lo and behold, a dance floor appears with Uh all the other rental gear. And I was so happy. It was like black and white checkered dance floor. (laughs) Classic, classic dance floor. And uh, in the middle of the party, it started coming apart. (laughs) (laughs) And these tiles are like separating in the middle of the dance floor. And it's it's like it's it's like it's a wonderful life. Yeah. As long as there's not a swimming pool in between. (laughs) Um, And I was so, so that was my big trauma, my bat mitzvah. Um, (laughs) The splitting of the dance floor. Yeah. It's symbolic. It's like the parting of the Red Seas or something. I guess. Or I it's, guess. you know, the split between childhood and adulthood. Oh, I didn't know that. There's always a, a way to. At the time. <laughs> Jews are very into, you know, so, turning um, it into a metaphor. In my, you know, very charmed upbringing, that was the big trauma of my bum. It's wow. the dance floor that was, was no longer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, it sounds like a rip roaring time. <laughs> literally all right well thank you so much once again okay that is all for episode six of the kibitz please let us know what you think seriously send me an email tweet us do anything uh we're on facebook we're on twitter at kibitz pod or you can follow me at dan crane here or email us your comments at kibitzpod at gmail.com. And before you dive into your next cheeseburger, please consider giving us a review on the old iTunes. I'd like to thank our guests, David and Moshe Kasher, Laura Gabbert, Lara Rabinovich, and Manana. Uh, Moshe Kasher will be appearing live May 22nd in Honolulu, Hawaii on his honeymoon tour with Natasha Legero, And you can find David Kasher's podcast on Parshanut.com. Also, City of Gold is still in theaters. It's worth seeing in the theater. You need to see this food on a giant screen. It's uh, spectacular. You will leave very hungry. This episode was produced and edited by me, Dan Crane, with help from Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, and David Jargowski. Additional engineering by Brett Morris. Special thanks to Amelia Klein, Robin Kramer, Earwolf, and of course, Reboot. Our main theme music is courtesy of Nunon Plu, and there's also some instrumentals in there from my current band, Ray and Ramora. 
Check us out if you like the music. We're online at facebook.com slash rayandremora. As my great-grandmother used to say, that's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Es Gesunderheit from the Kibitz. <laughs>